We're actually going to pick up our text a little bit earlier than what I printed in the worship guide. We're going to begin in Luke 23, verse 50. So we're picking up right where we left off on Good Friday, if you were here for our Good Friday service. Jesus has breathed his last breath on the cross. Luke reports that a centurion who was watching said, Surely this man was innocent, and he praised God. The crowd of people who had gathered together to watch the spectacle went away distraught, beating their chests. The women stood watching at a distance. And now, beginning at Luke 23:50, I'm going to read through chapter 24, verse 12. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Do you see there in verse 11 how the apostles and disciples first respond to news that Christ is risen? The words seem to them an idle tale. It was simply unbelievable. Perhaps this is your response this morning. Maybe you're here with family or friends and you're thinking, this is idle words. This is unbelievable. How can it be true? After all, the dead do not simply get up and start walking around. And certainly not a man who died like this. Jesus, who was scourged with a whip, beaten, crucified, and left exposed to the elements for six hours, run through with a Roman spear, his organs pierced, 
certified dead by a Roman soldier, wrapped in grave clothes, lying in a tomb for three days. He certainly doesn't just get up and start walking around. We don't need modern science to tell us that. Once one is dead, they are dead. What then do we make of this account? Is it simply idle words? What can we make of this? This morning I want you to see two simple truths. They're both found in the beginning of verse 6. He is not here. He is risen. I've been reading for the last year and a half or so a series of historical fiction novels, and they're set in Reformation-era England. And they're good novels, but one of the drawbacks is the author has to contrive to get his main character into the heart of the action, into the throne room of King Henry, into the palaces, into the middle of battles. Because when you read historical fiction, part of the thrill is to see the events with your own eyes, as it were, to be in the middle of them. Well, as historical fiction, Luke fails miserably. What's the main thing in this story? It's Christ rising from the dead and leaving the tomb. And yet Luke's characters arrive, and the tomb's already open. Jesus is already gone. Uh, if you ever read that book, No Country for Old Men, or saw the movie, the main gunfight happens, and you never see it. They just show up, and the scene's already over. We've missed the action. Well, why would Luke tell his story like this? We've got to go back to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning of Luke, where he explains what he sets out to do in this book. He says, what I am doing is, is I'm, I, I've undertaken to compile a narrative. It is a story, but it's based on eyewitness accounts and the words of ministers to produce an orderly account so that my readers will have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. His story is put together of eyewitness accounts and the words passed on from various ministers. And so he simply does not have the liberty to invent scenes. No matter how much we'd like to be there to see the earthquake, the angels roll away the stone, Jesus walking out, he doesn't have an eyewitness to that. Now, eyewitness testimony can be unreliable. That's why eyewitnesses are cross-examined in court. But although it can be unreliable, eyewitness testimony is essential for all human knowing. Take a very simple question. How do I know who my parents are? I was there for my birth, but I don't remember it. My parents said, you're my child. But for all I know, they could be baby snatchers that snuck into the hospital. Okay, their eyewitness testimony might be unreliable. A doctor signed the birth certificate saying, yes, I delivered this baby to these parents, but he could have turned his back and the baby's been switched. Well, you say, let's all do 23andMe and get our DNA tested. You can figure out that your parents are your parents. But you're sending your sample off, trusting a postman to get it to the right place, and then some anonymous lab tech processes it all. They read the results and they report back to you. There's eyewitness testimony, yes. You are these parents' child. Okay? Eyewitness testimony can be unreliable, but it's essential to human knowing, even knowing who our parents are. Simple things like that. We are dependent on eyewitness testimony. So we cannot reject it simply on principle. Well, if Luke's eyewitnesses didn't see the resurrection, what did they see? 
Joseph of Arimathea is certainly one of these eyewitnesses. He was a council member, part of the council that put Jesus to death, and yet Luke tells us he was opposed to that plan. Uh, in passing, this is a theme we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke. Some of the Pharisees warned him. Other Pharisees tried to silence his followers. There's this division happening throughout Israel. Even in the council, the leaders of Jerusalem, the majority crucifies Jesus, but some were opposed to that plan. Well, Joseph is in the minority. He loses that vote, but he goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body, for permission to bury it. Uh, in, in ancient Palestine, these sorts of tombs that is described here, cut into the stone, oftentimes had numerous ledges and several bodies could be put in them. And the bodies would be left for about a year and then you'd come back and collect the bones that were left and put them in an ostracon, a sort of small coffin to store the bones in. And certainly that's what's happening here with Jesus. That's why the women are going to anoint the body uh, to prepare it for the decomposition process to collect the bones down the road. Well, we're told that it was an unused tomb. No other body had ever been laid in it. So there's no chance that Jesus' body has been confused with another tomb or with another body in the tomb. Joseph wraps the body and lays it in the tomb. And we're told these women from Galilee who had come down from Galilee with Jesus followed him to the tomb and saw where the body had been laid. They mark the tomb then and go home to prepare the body, uh, or, or rather to prepare the spices and ointment to bring back. But while they're doing that, dusk falls on the Sabbath. And so they're home all Sabbath day. When the next sun sets, Sabbath ends, but it's too dark to go to the tomb. And so first thing the next morning, they're up at sunrise, heading to the tomb. It's interesting, Luke just says here at the beginning uh, that these women from Galilee followed and watched Jesus be buried. In verse 49, he actually said the same thing about the crucifixion. These women from Galilee stood by and watched all that had happened. They are just referred to as the women all the way until verse 10. As, as it were, Luke is saying, here's this eyewitness account, and then at the end of it, it's his sort of footnote. He's citing the sources. At the end of their eyewitness account, he says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women who told us these things. He's saying, here's our sources. They're still alive. They're still part of the Christian community. You can go talk to them if you'd like to. You can cross-examine these witnesses. Well, they see the burial, they mark the tomb, they go home to prepare the spices, they return on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. And verses 24, or chapter 24, verses 2 and 3 tell us that when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away, but they did not find Jesus' body. He isn't here. He isn't here. These are the facts. Jesus was surely dead. There is no chance that he was only mostly dead after what he had gone through. His death was certified by professional executioners. It's not that he revived and then rolled away the stone himself and overpowered the guards and was wandering about the city uh, wounded and naked somewhere. Jesus was really all the way dead. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph. Joseph knew which tomb it was. The women knew which tomb it was. And Matthew, in his gospel, tells us also that the Jerusalem officials, the council, they knew which tomb it was, and they sent guards to watch it. Everybody knew which tomb it was. 
Now he isn't here. The tomb is empty. These are the facts. But the facts alone don't lead to belief in the resurrection. How do the women respond to the empty tomb? We're told that they are perplexed and frightened. How do the apostles respond? These apostles who had shortly proclaimed the resurrection boldly throughout the city think it is an idle tale, a fairy story. How then do these women come to believe? They're perplexed by the absence of Jesus' body, but then they're frightened at the presence of two angels who come to them. The angels come with this message. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here. Jesus isn't dead. Why look for him in a graveyard? He isn't here. He is risen. He is risen. But it's not even the visit of the angels that leads the women to believe. People are visited by angels and still have uh, disbelief in the Bible. What brings the women to believe? They are reminded of Jesus' own words, of Jesus' own teaching. Remember what he told you? Remember while you were still in Galilee, he taught you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. The women believe in Jesus' resurrection as they remember Jesus' own teaching, as they recall it with insight. Indeed, this is really all I'm doing when I preach, is trying to remind you of Jesus' word, of God's word. And it's as you recall these words that you come to belief. The women believe, uh, sorry, I already, I already made that point. The events of the previous three days, the angels remind them, were no accident. This isn't something horrible, a catastrophe that came upon Jesus unexpectedly. As horrible as the crucifixion is, as the death of the Son of God is, it was not a catastrophe that derailed Jesus' plan. In fact, this is the plan. Jesus warned them ahead of time, this is what would happen. He taught them these things must happen to carry out God's plan to rescue the world. To deliver the world, Jesus must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He had to enter into the middle of the brokenness and injustice and wrongdoing and take it upon himself. To satisfy divine justice, Jesus must be crucified. He must be executed as a criminal, a lawbreaker, a rebel. For indeed, that's what each of us are. We have broken God's law. We have rebelled against his authority. But the plan doesn't end in the tomb. It didn't end on the cross. Just as Jesus must die to fulfill God's plan, so he must rise again on the third day. Why? He rises again because God's love for his own son is greater even than the power of death. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God shows that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He vindicates his son. If you're here on Good Friday, you remember Jesus was mocked, or you read, read Luke's gospel this week, you remember that Jesus was mocked on the cross. They said, aren't you supposed to be the Christ of God? His chosen one, aren't you supposed to be the king of the Jews? Then why can't you save yourself? 
at the resurrection, God is saying, yes, this is my Messiah, my Christ. This is my chosen one. This is my beloved son. He didn't save himself because he died to save you. And now his work is completed and accepted. As the women remember what Jesus taught, they realize this is the plan. His death was not a mistake, as horrible as it is. And of course the tomb is empty. He taught us the Son of Man must rise on the third day. It all starts to click for the women when they remember Jesus' teaching. When Jesus said, I had to rise on the third day, he wasn't speaking in figurative terms. He wasn't saying, I'll live on as an idea in your hearts, and you guys will teach this idea to others. He wasn't saying, I'll be reincarnated like the Dalai Lama or something like that. He wasn't even saying it will be a mere resuscitation. His friend Lazarus was resuscitated, was brought back to life, but Lazarus died again. No, Jesus rises to this new life, this eternal life, a life that would not end. And so Jesus' words interpret his work and lead the women to believe. And friends, this is the same dynamic that has to be at work in each of our hearts, in each of our minds. Jesus' words lead us to believe as they interpret his work so that his work can be accomplished within each of us. Now, many Jews in Jesus' day believed that there would be a resurrection at the last day, at the end of all time. But a resurrection in the very middle of history was unexpected, almost unthinkable. And so when the apostles don't believe the women, when they say it seems like an idle tale, this isn't casual sexism saying, oh, women, what do they know? No, they, they literally didn't have the categories available to them to even make sense of what they were being told. The resurrection cannot simply be tacked on to your existing view of life. Uh, whatever your pre-existing philosophy or worldview is, you can't simply plug in the resurrection and everything keeps working. If you told me after service that marine biologists had discovered a new type of whale, I'd say, well, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. But it doesn't change anything, challenge fundamentally how I think about the world. There could be all sorts of whales I don't know about. Okay? But this is not a fact like that, just one more fact to add to a list. Unless Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of your view of life and of the world, you simply cannot make sense of it. It's a fact so startling, so challenging, that it rearranges everything you think you know about the world. And only when that becomes the foundation can you make sense of this eyewitness account that we're hearing. No matter how reliable the eyewitness is, how well documented it is, even if angels come and tell you personally, he is not here, he is risen. If you're trying to tack the resurrection into some other competing view of the world, it will seem like idle talk. But perhaps the disciples or the apostles are right. They say this is idle talk, but another way you could translate this is they say this is a fairy tale. A fairy tale. Too good to be true. It's, it's wonderful, but too good to be believable. But perhaps in a sense they are right. The resurrection is like discovering that the most wonderful fairy tale you've ever read is actually true. 
In his essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien writes that one of the central marks of a fairy tale is the joy of a happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. It is sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. Tolkien coins a name for this unexpected joyous turn of events. He calls it the U-catastrophe. It's like a catastrophe, a disaster that strikes unexpectedly, but it's a good disaster, a good catastrophe, totally unexpected. Jesus' resurrection, then, is the true U-catastrophe, the sudden, unexpected, joyous turn of events. It means that we live in a world full of deep magic, whereby even death cannot finally defeat the Son of God, who has lived among us in disguise. Luke stresses, uh, he says several times that the Sabbath has passed and this takes place on the first day of the week. If you go back and read Genesis 1, God spent six days creating the world and he finished his work on the afternoon of the sixth day, on Friday afternoon. And then he took Sabbath on Saturday to rest. Now Christ's work on the cross finished Friday afternoon. The day that God created man and woman on the earth, Christ is dying for man and woman on the cross. He spends Sabbath in the tomb, and now, the first day of the week, once again, light shines in the midst of darkness. The beginning of the new creation, with the stone rolled away, with new life, new power charging the entire world, coming forth as Jesus strides forth triumphant from the grave. As Samwise Gamgee, uh, Tolkien's great hero, puts it, everything sad is coming untrue. Not all at once. Jesus says the kingdom is like leaven. It takes time to work its way throughout the world. There's still death and sadness and sorrow. And yet in the midst of it, there is hope. True hope. The apostles can't believe it initially. And I think here is a good picture for us of discipleship. Sometimes we think you can only be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, if you're 100% convinced of everything. Once you're totally convinced, then you'll join a church and become a disciple. But do you see these disciples, they followed Jesus for three years and they're still filled with doubts. They still can't believe. I think it's perfectly reasonable to be a disciple that still struggles with doubts and questions. Well, they don't all simply disbelieve. Peter rose, the same word that the angels say what Christ did. He rose. We see a glimmer of spiritual life in Peter. He rose and he ran to the tomb. He too was an eyewitness to the empty tomb. He said, yes, it was empty. Yes, the grave clothes were lying there. He's not yet convinced. He goes home marveling, wondering, what could this mean? But soon he will write a letter to the early churches. And in that letter, he will write, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What works this great change in Peter? What changes that he goes from not being sure, from marveling, to boldly proclaiming 50 days later on the day of Pentecost that Christ has risen again? Well, he himself encounters the resurrected living Jesus. If you're here with us next week and the week after, we're going to keep going through Luke 24, and we'll see these eyewitness accounts 
of meeting the risen Jesus. But what about us? Can we meet the risen, resurrected, living Jesus? Can we know him like Peter did? Well, we're 20 centuries on, and yet our situation is actually not fundamentally different. Peter and the other apostles first hear good news, news so good that it's unbelievable. Friends, you've heard the basics of the good news this morning already. That Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, died, buried, and on the third day rose again. Maybe that sounds unbelievable to you. Too good to be true. So what do we do? Like Peter, we've got to check out the facts. Peter jumps and runs to the tomb. If you want, you could fly to Jerusalem and see what's suspected to be the tomb. It's still empty. But what do we do? How do we check out the facts? Well, we have these gospel stories. Luke compiles a narrative based on eyewitness accounts. We can investigate the facts for ourselves. But Peter doesn't just do this alone. He does it with a group of disciples that are gathered together. And so if you have questions about the risen Jesus, a great place to wrestle with those questions is together with the church, with other disciples. Uh, Our Sunday evening service especially, we have great time of discussion where you can ask questions and we we can discuss together what the gospel means. There's a downside, though. You need to count the cost. Peter, in that letter, goes on to write about being maligned, being marginalized, being insulted for the gospel, even being physically persecuted. Peter himself will end up dying on a cross for preaching the gospel. Legend has it that he counted himself unworthy to be crucified the same way as Jesus and so asked to be hung upside down. There is a cost to following Jesus. Make no mistake. You've got to consider the implications. It's like entering a fairy story. It changes everything we think we know about the world. And then, friends, there comes a final moment when you have to make a decision. When you've got to get skin in the game. It's okay to be a disciple and ask questions and have doubts. But at some point, you have to say, I'm in. I'm willing to follow Jesus, this resurrected Lord. This is my hope. You can't go on indefinitely riding the fence. And so I call you to the same thing that these women called Peter to. He is not there. He is risen. Let us pray. Lord, if we were to continue reading Luke's story into the book of Acts, we would see that one of the missing ingredients that the apostles needed in order to believe was your Holy Spirit. And I know just as surely that if those who doubt your resurrection today are going to believe, they need your Spirit to be at work within them. I ask for all of us then that your Spirit would be at work once again, showing us, illuminating for us, convicting us of the words of your scripture. Give us faith to believe these accounts, that indeed the tomb was empty, that indeed you had risen. 
Some of us have believed this for many years, but we ask once again for renewed trust, for renewed insight into how glorious this truth is, how it changes everything. Others, I'm sure, Lord, this still sounds like an idle tale, but I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would be at work in them even this morning, that this Easter morning they might have the new resurrected life at work in their spirits that was at work in Christ all those years ago. We thank you that you have so publicly and clearly declared that Christ is your son by raising him again from the dead that Easter morning 20 centuries ago. We rejoice in this great truth that there is life and hope in this world. Amen.